0: Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs.
1: Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated
0: young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolaou.
2: Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here as always with David Scott. Great to be here again. And our guest this week, we are humbled and honored to be joined by, now I feel like there should be some kind of little drum roll here, but it's Stephen Kukulas, also known as the Kook. Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. An absolute pleasure. Looking forward to the discussion. Um, now, look, guys, uh, for those of you who don't know Stephen, I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners will, but he's one uh, of Australia's best-known economists. He's had a fascinating career, chief economist at Citibank, later senior economic advisor to Julia Gillard when she was prime minister also worked in London, uh, leading global research for TD Securities for three years, and uh, we're delighted to have him on the show. Um, He's um, super eloquent on on economics and super prescient. So um, on the show this week, we're going to talk about the almighty shambles with the Australian National Census on Tuesday. Um we're gonna talk about um politicians and, and their need to get their act together on fiscal policy. We're gonna talk a little bit talk a little bit about the rates outlook and what's happened with the Aussie dollar. Yet another fascinating week. Um I think as we were recording it's just hovering above seventy seven cents. Um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about finance Twitter. Uh, Stephen um, is uh, very prominent uh, on Twitter. Uh, you, you know, obviously you'll see him on TV, et cetera, but he's uh, he's really good at leading the discussion uh, around economics and um, and fiscal policy in Australia on that forum. But first, to this debacle with the census. Now, we all know what happened. Government tried to do the census online. Um, It involves the completion of an incredibly important survey of Australia's households and used for all sorts of, uh, informing all sorts of policy and business decisions right across the the economy. Um, It didn't work. Uh, the, The website shut down. The government says it was a confluence of factors. Um, one of those potentially being a denial of service attack by malicious agents, whether they're kids in bedrooms or foreign governments or whatever. Um, but look, the damage to the ABS brand has been huge. Um, and the government now, it's become a, a bit of a competence issue for the Turnbull government uh, in terms of their response Turnbull. Um, uh, uh, the time we're recording is on Thursday, and um, uh, Turnbull's on the warpath. He says that his calm demeanor you know, belies his anger at this. Um, but, look, I think what's been interesting about this, Stephen, has been that you know, the, the economics and finance community has been grumbling about the ABS, its product, how it's working for some time. Um, and this has suddenly exploded uh, into general public consciousness, um, this week. Um, what's your take on, on what's happened?
0: Look, the good news is that it's not going to cause a recession, and it's not going to cause a policy error. It's just a debacle in collecting data on demographics, basically. But it is a big debacle, it's costly, it's embarrassing, but perhaps importantly it builds on a range of other problems the ABS have had in recent years, and that is some uncertainty about how it's calculating a range of other numbers. The labour force numbers have been incredibly volatile and a couple of years ago they effectively abandoned their seasonally adjusted estimates because they were just too volatile because they'd cut the size of the sample that they were taking. So we got these outlying results and they were so absurd that even the Bureau of Statistics didn't believe them. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, 120,000
2: uh, jobs created in one month, according to one report. And
0: followed by a fall of 170,000 or something absurd, which is clearly didn't happen. So that's part of the problem. But it also builds on an issue that I think has been evident for some years, and that is the effect of so-called efficiency dividends from the public servant. Both sides of politics have used cuts to the public service to try to balance the budget, futile, but they've been trying to. And the ABS has been one of those departments, and it's been uh, evident in not only the census debacle, the labour force numbers problem, but when you look at the fact that our national accounts, the GDP numbers, come out quite slowly compared to the rest of the world. They take a couple of months to even get the first estimate. and So we don't know where we've been for quite a while in terms of economic growth. We don't have a monthly CPI like just about every other country. So in terms of inflection points on inflation, so when inflation's accelerating, decelerating, we get this quarterly snapshot. And,
2: of course, this is... And we don't
0: uh, know whether there's something that happened within the quarter because we don't have monthly data.
2: That's right. And it's, it's, it's the inflation picture is so, so important um, to, to monetary policy for understanding you know, the direction of the economy because, basically... Um, uh, it's a very blunt way of describing it, but the RBA looks to sort of manage that number. Um, now, when you're getting it on a on a monthly basis, um, you're in a much better position to sort of... The markets would be in a much better position to, to um, figure out what the RBA might be thinking on that data, but the RBA doesn't get the data itself, so everybody's just got to sit around and... And wait for the quarterly numbers, which is why when we look at the timing of interest
0: rate adjustments over the last decade or so, I think about three-quarters of rate... Increases and decreases have occurred in the meeting after the quarterly CPI has been released. So they sort of get this bang, either a very low inflation rate, as we've seen for the last uh, couple of times, or previously a high inflation rate, and then they react. They're left running and scrambling to, to adjust their position. And while monthly numbers are clearly more volatile, petrol goes up or pharmaceutical prices change, the RBA and market economists are smart enough to look through the noise and why did it jump, why did it fall? Uh, and, the, uh, and the RBA would obviously publish that information too. So the the only thing that's holding back the monthly numbers and the ABS have looked at that is the cost. Yeah. So it keeps coming back to this issue where a poorly resourced statistical bureau is feeding dubious quality data to the Reserve Bank, to Treasury when they're trying to frame the budget, to financial markets when they're deciding whether to buy or sell Aussie dollars, Aussie equities, Aussie bonds, uh, and they're... R- clearly relying on data that's not altogether reliable, which, of course, is potentially catastrophic. And the census just highlighted the ABS's difficulty in being able to produce, you know, competent, reasonably reliable data. And uh, it's it's really undermined what was already a fragile position for them.
2: And, And, you know, on the one hand, you have Treasurer Scott Morrison out there trying to explain away some of the troubles with managing... Um, the trajectory of fiscal policy and, and, and tre- uh, treasury 's uh, projections over the, the course of the forward estimates in the budget. Um, but then we've got this situation with the ABS, where it's very hard to get a read when you've got these, I suppose, big gaps between um, the, um, the recording of, um, of what's going on in the economy. Um, David, what has your take um, been on, on, on what's happened this
1: week? For those of you who don't like swearing, Please uh, block your ears. Uh, in my opinion, it was a clusterfuck of epic proportions uh, and a real embarrassment. And I am slightly concerned about how reliable the actual data is going to be now. Uh, there was already a degree of mistrust in how the data was going to be used, the debacle about why names had to be included, why they were going to be held for an extended period of time this occasion. All of those things were already there in the, in the background. And then you have this Tuesday night, which was, uh, no. I I managed to go and get mine in Um, nice and early, but uh, everyone else tried to go and log on and then, of course, uh, they got uh, attacked uh, and then just, no, only just come up uh, today, the actual site. Uh, It's a real embarrassment and then are people going to go and feed into the, uh, actually going to do the uh, the survey now? Are we going to have to go and do another survey? I'm I'm not sure because I really wonder about how solid the the snapshot is of what the Australian economy, what the Australian populace is doing is going to come off that uh, the information we've received so far.
2: Yeah, um, I think you know that word you used. It's almost like it was designed for um, for what happened on uh, this Tuesday. Um, it's it, uh, yeah, it's certainly been just extraordinary, and and the the impacts for this they will this will, is not going to just be one of those issues. I think that will go away. You'll occasionally, I'm sure, um, you know, crystal ball gazing, but. Um, you'll hear people talking about, well, we're not really sure about how reliable that data is. And particularly when you get an outlying data release,
0: particularly on the top-tier data. So you get a GDP result that's way outside market expectations. Or, again, we mentioned the labour force. Just imagine next week we're due for a labour force number and we get a minus 25,000 jobs or something like that. People say, well, we can't really believe that. But if it actually happens to be true, uh, if that's one that they've actually got a reasonable reading on, that the labour market's slowing down, that's feeding into the wage equation, feeding into monetary policy, and of course what uh, fiscal policy settings should be or could be, then of course um, the scepticism which is sort of attached to a, an outlying number could well be misplaced. So again, it just compounds the problem of it's hard to drive a car when you don't know where you're going. And the, the ABS produced data on where the economy is going. And if we don't know that, then what policies are appropriate?
1: Yeah, the, uh, the, the labour force statistics is one that really irks me. Uh, obviously, the seasonally adjusted figures uh, have been skewed in some, some direction. It's very hard to go and read the data, and certainly there is no trust from a market perspective anymore in those seasonally adjusted figures. The markets still still trade off it because it provides plenty of volatility, They want the volatility, but no one actually trusts it. The ABS keeps trying to go and push people towards the uh, other trend analysis. But one thing I found very strange, and it it almost endemic of how uh, bad the survey has become, is that a lot of the economic notes that I receive now before the uh, the labour force data comes out are all about what the impact of the, uh, the survey rotation is going to be on the data, nothing to do with what the actual trend is, what's going on in the labour force. It's how is this you know, data, which has been shambled together, going to actually go and print, and what's likely the outcome? Is it going to be a decline of 30,000? Is it going to be you know, a rise of 50,000? Uh, that just tells me exactly the, the focus of the data is now no longer on what's going on in the labour market. It's how it's actually being constructed
0: how you can trade off the back of that, because if you can work out the sample rotation, is going to skew you towards a low result, you're short Aussie, you're long the bonds, and, and you're happy if you're right.
2: I, I suppose you compare this to you know, the mother of all monthly economic data releases, which is the, the jobs uh, data out of the US uh, on the first, um, the first Friday morning of each, of each month, at local time in New York. But that is enormous, and it's so hugely important and relied on for everything. It moves all sorts of markets, um, like it drives equities, bonds, currencies um, across the globe, and not just the US crosses with other currencies. It's, you know, it'll drive, you know, Aussie yen and and everything. Um, So uh, you, you know, you compare that and how reliable it is, and how nobody, everybody is just. There's never a question about the reliability of the data. And part of that is, I suppose, the methodology. Um, they do it on payrolls um, registered with, with the federal government. It would be a good way of doing it here.
0: I don't know why we don't think about our new methodology or a new methodology to make our numbers more reliable, more transparent as well. So it's possible to fix it, but you just need the resources to do it, which is coming back to that same question about the reliability of how they capture
1: the economic data in the economy. Yeah, My, my final thing on the ABS is that whilst well, there's the debate about the, the budget side of things and how much it's had its budget cut, I also think there's a lot of releases that they go and put out which are not necessary. And I think that what we need to do is we need to go and have a look at some instances where if it's that important, then the private sector could go and do their own surveys. There's a lot of things like, I, I, there's too many to go and count, but there's a lot of stuff there where I think the misallocation of resources, I'd rather go and see Some surveys, hotel occupancy rates,
0: for example, and things. Why is that a relevant issue for the Australian government to know? Where
1: you'd assume the tourism commission could fund that? I completely agree, and that's where I think that uh, some of those surveys and the funding that gets put towards that could be going and allocated towards the more important releases, like the labour force data, like the GDP report, like a monthly inflation report. Those things are the ones that, to the entire economy and from a policymaker perspective, is uh, is much more important.
2: Yeah, um, penguin populations on Phillip Island and all that kind of thing. Um, Although, I hear that moved Aussie Yen the other day when we saw that (laughs) (laughs) number. Well, I I, I think one of the things is, you know, at least what this might do now is is force the issue. So not just about the census, but maybe about some of that other work that um, the... uh, The ABS is doing. So, okay, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast uh, from Business Insider Australia. And don't forget, you can find us on iTunes, where you can rate us and leave us a review. Um, And I'm here with David Scott and Stephen Koukoulas. Now, Glenn Stevens uh, steps down um, after uh, 10 years at the helm of the Reserve Bank of Australia. I think uh, a fair analysis is that the guy's done a a pretty good job. Uh, Certainly, Australia hasn't been in a recession um, through that time. Uh, you know, um, the, 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 the country has been through a once in a, in, in a lifetime, once in a century, maybe once in forever mining boom. Um, and, uh, you know, the Reserve Bank has uh, had to um, take some pretty difficult decisions um, on interest rates. It stood on the throat of, um, of the eastern states for a while with um, higher interest rates through the mining boom. Um, but then, as you know, cut and sometimes pretty aggressively um, as the uh, mining investment boom is unwound. Um, now, I'm going to quote a little bit extensively just to set up this next part um, of of our discussion. Um, but it's a little bit extensively from um, some, from Glenn Stevens' speech this week, uh, this week. It's a few sentences, but he's talking about the importance of governments getting their act together on the pol- on the fiscal policy side um, to try and um, to try and do. Um, do the best, do the right thing by the economy, and I suppose what we're getting at here, this is this is becoming a broad theme in global markets and among economists, as it has become apparent in the last couple of years that mon- monetary policy um, around the world is kind of uh, running out of um, out of ammunition and becoming less effective in terms of its uh, stimulatory effect. So, anyway, here's uh, Stevens. Many difficult choices will need to be made along the path of budgetary adjustment. At present, general public debates start with commitment to the need for reform and for putting public finances on a sustainable medium-term track. But when specific ideas are proposed that will actually make a difference over the medium to long-term, the conversation quickly shifts to rather narrow notions of fairness. People look to their own positions, the interest groups all come out, and the specific proposals often run into the sand. If we think this rather otherworldly discussion will not have to give way to a more hard-nosed conversation, we are kidding ourselves. That will occur occur, should there be a moment of crisis, but it would be better if it occurred before then. In addition, this may complicate the fiscal discussion. We can't just assume that monetary policy can simply dial up the growth we need. We need some realism here. Now, central bankers choose their words carefully. Uh, Stephen, um, that's pretty blunt, isn't it? That's a sort your house out.
0: It is, and it's been something that he's been couching a bit more carefully than that in years gone by, and it's something that we all sort of know in a way, that uh, of course there are issues in the global economy that no politician can deal with, that it's the Chinese slowdown, the commodity price decline over the last few years... Uh, 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 the global disinflation, if we can call that zero or negative interest rates in part of the world. They're things that impact on our economy, of course they do. And there's not much that we can do specifically. But in terms of the budget, we've had this uh, five years now, and again, both sides of politics have been trying to deal with it. They've been saying the right things, but doing nothing about it. They've been tinkering with small budget changes here, little revenue measures there. Uh, But the net effect has actually been not much at all. So I think what Stevens was alluding to with those sort of comments, that if we're going to be uh, reloading the fiscal cannon, if you like, for the next downturn, that we've got the money and the capacity to ramp up spending, like we did during the GFC, which I think um, on balance was actually a very good response. There were were a couple of little issues that went wrong, but on balance you'd tend to go early, go hard, go households. So we had cash to do it then. And you would
2: certainly take the outcome.
0: Correct, and again, as you alluded to, with Glenn Stevenson, there was no recession. He was partly part of that. China was part of it, but so was the fiscal policy response. But if you're starting from a position where your uh, net government debt's close to 20% of GDP, your budget deficit's two to three percent of GDP, ramping up a fiscal stimulus of a couple of percentage points of GDP, were we to have a horrendously negative shock, is A little harder to do. It is, in fact, much harder to do. So while the economy is certainly not strong, we're we're growing, you know, it's it's a reasonable pace of economic growth. While ever that's the case, then I think you can do something on fiscal policy uh, that not only makes a bit more rapid progress towards getting to that surplus... But it can be done in a way that doesn 't necessarily inhibit growth that, and that's, that's the dilemma that I think Scott Morrison as treasurer is confronting right now. You know he would love, of course he 'd love to get the budget back into surplus quicker you know he'd be very pleased if he could do that, but he 's also uh, aware of the fact that he feels to tighten fiscal policy in isolation, just cut spending and perhaps hike a few taxes and then lo and behold there's your surplus in two or three years time But the effect course, would be
2: devastating yeah.
0: it, it, The economy would be weakening at a time when the risks seem to be building to the downside anyway so he's going to be very cautious about that but that said Glenn Stevens is saying to the politicians in the sense that you can look at other policies, you know, the, the one that's been around for a decade and it's, it's going to be around for another decade, I'm afraid, is infrastructure spending, things like that. So we know that with our population, population increasing by about a million people every three years, we're going to need more roads, more schools, more offices, more public transport, more airports, more facilities just to grow the economy. The public sector's got a responsibility, in my view, to build the bulk of those, um, Let's do it. It creates jobs
2: and Unlocks it has a lasting legacy. For, it's not
0: yeah. $900 checks that are spent and disappeared, and that's the end of it. This
2: is lasting infrastructure legacy for the economy. Yeah, and, and puts in, in place, you know, this potential for unlocking new productivity gains and and so on. Um, do you think now is the time to be doing it with interest rates where they are? Um, the, the Australian ten-year bond is is at a yield of 1.9 something percent. Um, so, you know, is this the time to be doing it? Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm a little unsure about whether you use the level of
0: interest rates to ramp up your borrowing. You do it because the project's worth doing. And if it happens to be the case that interest rates are low, well, that's a double whammy. That's a, a bonus. That, for example, uh, yeah, it, I would still be building roads and rails and ports and airports and these sorts of things, even if interest rates were 3 or 4%. I'd still be doing that because that's the legacy that in 10 and 20 and 30 years' time... Our kids are going to be driving on those roads that we build. They're going to be flying from the second Sydney airport. They're going to be benefiting from the fact that our exporters will be able to get their stuff to port more quickly and efficiently. So there is a benefit from doing that. And from the bottom line budget perspective, as we've seen over the last two or three decades, the Keating government, uh, Howard Costello they privatised things that were worth selling. So, in fact, the net effect on the long-run budget position is probably not much, because you build this infrastructure, a private sector, entity you want to buy it. But you also get the benefit of the near-term uh, boost to growth because you are employing people to, to build this stuff.
2: So one of the issues here, though, is um, the just political arithmetic, um, but also the nature of politics. Um, uh, I think um, when you look back at the campaign that the coalition ran, Uh, in the election, my view is that they didn't make a strong enough case. Well, clearly, and voters weren't convinced um, that they'd made a strong enough case for a really strong mandate um, for, you know, here is our platform. We are going to do something now. I think it's interesting when you get somebody like Glenn Stevens coming out and saying, um, you know, I think it's time for the political establishment to start to figure some some of this stuff out. Now, bipartisanship like Stephen says, may only come about in a moment of crisis. And we kind of don't want to get to that point because as you you hit the nail on the head when you say, well, look, the deficit is already at a point where you can't really raid the coffers much further if you're trying to cushion the economy from uh, from, from what appears to be a looming downturn.
0: And it is the political uh, class that needs to run with it, both state and federal, both conservative and Progressive, if we can call them that. Yeah, you know, so everyone's just got to get together. Yeah, you know, again, we don't have a crisis, and thank goodness we don't, and we don't want one. But we do know that unless we start making some act or doing something about it now, that we run the risk that the crisis does become more problematic when it in- inevitably will occur. So that's part of the issue. The other one, and I'll I'll have a bit of a go at the um, uh, business sector too, because they've not been terribly good advocates of policy change. Um, again, the election campaign was a case in point, for example, where the company tax cut uh, as the coalition's central plank, and fair enough, it's, it's a good idea to cut taxes if you can afford to do it. Um, and they were sort of, of course, keen to be seeing the company tax rate being phased down over the next decade, and that's great. But the budget issue and the productivity issue uh, and the sustainability of... Uh, the economic growth momentum and r- lifting up our potential rate of GDP is a lot more than just a company tax cut. Where are those industry lobby groups or the business leaders coming out and thumping the table and saying, okay, company tax is fine, but also we can see that if that's the only uh, shot in your um, that you've got to change economic policy, it's not enough. We do need to actually uh, look at efficiency in the labour market, for example, and industrial relations and labour market policies another one that's sort of been swept off the table. The Labour Party can't touch it because they're in the pocket of the unions. The coalition can't touch it because it's bringing back work choices. So nothing
2: gets done, and that's incredibly
0: frustrating.
2: And, and you know, when you look at, like, really in the last three years, it has become very apparent that there is a very, very big shift now underway in the nature of the labour force, um, part-time work, uh, is fairly regularly in uh, the un- unreliable um, data that we get from the ABS, but but part-time jobs are generally now increasingly you'll see in a monthly data that they are the big neck contributor um, to job creation. Um, so you know this is clearly a transformation that is that is underway in the in in the in the country um, for people's lives. Uh, maybe it, part of it is to do with um, the population getting older. Um, but also, you know, um, people trying a few different jobs when they're young um, and, uh, you know, the rise of freelancing economies and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's, you know, the, it, without industrial relations reform to give more flexibility to businesses, and you're dead right about the, how this has become, a, it's almost become the third rail of um, of, uh, of Australian politics is this, well, you know, you can't touch the minimum wage, you know, you can't touch these benefits, that benefits... You can't touch anything. You can't touch that. Um, so it's a really,
0: sorry, MC Hammer, but um, I won't <laughs> sing. Uh, but, you know, but it is, it is off the agenda and that's disappointing. And it's not to say that the solution's easy because, of course, uh, I think that a solid minimum wage is an important part of a decent economy. But then you do need labour market flexibility to ensure that those who are unemployed have a better opportunity to get a job. Um, so there's, it, it is difficult. I'm not saying it's easy. But that's. Uh, but most policy is difficult. Any policy is difficult. There's often losers and winners as you're changing policies even for the better, that you know that there's going to be a, a medium-term benefit. Uh, and that's the other part of the political problem, that it probably started in the latter part of the Howard years, but certainly the Rudd-Gillard years and Abbott-Turnbull years. Gosh, I think I've remembered all our promises in the last five minutes. Um, that, but it, there's this perception, and it's actually a reality, that to when a policy reform is implemented, that they want to compensate everybody who might lose out. So the net effect on the budget is nothing. You raise a billion, you spend a billion. So, oh, and the billion doesn't turn out to be a billion in revenue, only get, you only get half that, so the budget's deteriorating even more. So there's this question where, and again, Stephen's touched on that in another part of his speech, that there will be people that will lose from reform by definition. If you're going to get the budget deficit from $37 billion to zero not relying just on economic growth to deliver it to you. The revenue needs to come from somewhere. You're going to take money from someone or cut a service to someone. And I'm sorry, but that's the harsh reality of good public policy and good leadership. And that's the other thing that's really important that I'm hoping, hoping that the Prime Minister and Treasurer get out there, thump the table and say this is why we are doing whatever it is they happen to be doing over the next uh, course of this next
1: three years. There's not so much I can add to the conversation. It's been uh, excellent just sitting here listening to you guys going uh, and talk back and forth. Um, others may disagree with me, but I think the federal election cycle is far too short as well. I think it doesn't provide a mandate. Uh, you have this period where you have a, a Goldilocks period, you get in after an election, uh, you have one year, in my opinion, really, to try and get anything done, and then it comes back to trying to get re-elected again. And to me, that means that they're far too focused on trying to get re-elected, and they don't want to go and make the hard decision, because I know they make the hard decision they'll be out. So you have this cycle where you just have nothing really happens, three years, try and go and make it through, try and get re-elected, and the same thing happens again. When you have a longer period of time, four years, five years, yes, you might get stuck with an absolutely horrible government, but at least you've got that time, that mandate, and that time to go and push through reforms and, and do what the economy needs for the, the long run.
0: Most states now have a four-year fixed term,
1: and I would argue, this is
0: my observation, that I think our state politicians and state governments of all colours, of both colours, I should say, on average, with one or two exceptions are, are doing actually a very good job. If you look at um, Jay Wetherill, uh, Mike Baird, um, Dan Andrews, they're doing actually a pretty good job in difficult circumstances that they're generally looking at their, after their state's interest they're trying to improve their budget position from with very limited ability to do so but they're also looking at, at uh, important infrastructure and I think that they're perhaps showing some of this economic uh, innovative leadership, if we can call it that, that perhaps hasn't been so evident in, out of Canberra in the
2: last few years. I, I grew up in in Ireland, and we have five year terms there, uh, and it is great. Um, now, look, it's a much smaller country, um, but it, it, what happens is you have an election. There's all this noise for about a year, and then they go away, for and they get on with governing. You know, because there's, you know, unless a, a genuine political crisis develops. Um, there are fairly, you know, very centrist um, politics in in Ireland, um, much like we have here. I and mean, sometimes you think that you know we don't have very centrist parties, but we do. And um, so what happens is, anyway, they they go away, and um, after about two years, they need to. That's at the point at which they need to do some things. Um, but they'll often spend a year or two looking uh, at industrial relations reform and then come out, get everybody on board. You need time to get Time to sell the thing. I think David made the very good point that it's too short, and, in fact, this is one of
0: the issues that, again, have blown up what I think have been genuinely good policies or policy ideas, and things like carbon pricing, GST, that have been either on or off the agenda and things like that, is that one of the issues why politicians have run away from them or they've failed... Um, is because there hasn't been enough time to actually get the Treasurer or the Environment Minister or the Prime Minister or the Treasury of Secretary or even the RBA Governor from time to time to come out and advocate for these sorts of things, to raise the election then have the media, have the competent media, so to sort of write some interesting stories Why like, this is actually a good idea, and bringing the population along, and even though they begrudgingly might think, oh gosh, this is going to cost me a bit of money, but if they can see the benefit of it for the medium term of the economy, and that proverbial their children and grandchildren, yeah, you know, maybe they maybe they're willing to begrudgingly accept
2: tough policies and decisions that will be taken today. Can I uh, just get your take on where the economy is at now? Um, so, um, uh, you know, uh, there's been generally it's um, you know it's been good, but I think your rate c- call is now one one percent. It is one hundred
0: percent horribly wrong at the start of the year. Um, I was optimistic at the start of the year. I thought that we would get some traction coming through from probably what we're, that didn't turn out to be correct, on better global conditions, I thought that, you know, the recovery in the US, a bottoming in the Eurozone and perhaps a bottoming in China would have translated to higher commodity prices, so I'm happy with that forecast, but it hasn't translated into higher inflation or stronger activity here in Australia. So that was a dreadful call, but now... Uh, yeah, yeah, you, you, nothing wrong with being wrong... Um, But now I think you look through the numbers to the extent that we can trust the ABS (laughs) numbers, but it's a really mixed bag. You you, you get some good news from time to time about housing starts, so that's good for economic activity. It's addressing the housing shortage or soon to be turned into probably excess supply. We're getting okay numbers on the labour market. Uh, It's not bad. It's not great. Uh, We're getting soggy retail sales numbers, though, which is a little bit of a concern. Business investment in mining we know is horrible, probably will be for another couple of years, but... Uh, mining, sorry, non-mining investment capex is also pretty disappointing. We're getting good export volumes, so that's good. Um, so it's this real hodgepodge. And sure, not all signs or all parts of the economy always grow together or fall together, but I think now we're getting sort of uh, more extreme lifts and dips in these sub-components of the economy, and even on a geographical basis, you know, you're getting a very sharp change in how WA is going versus New South Wales, for example. And that's making it very,
2: very hard to read. Um, I think uh, one of the phrases that uh, I've seen you use from time to time is "modeling through," Yes. Um, which is, um, I think, you know, pretty accurate. It's not, you know, it's not bullish, it's not bearish, but it's, you know. Um, you know, we're kind of not, you know, it's not, nothing is doing spectacularly. I'm just probably a little, maybe a little bit of concern about the heat um, that there is in, in Sydney and Melbourne. I mean, you can't kind of take your eye off that. Yeah,
0: it's like coming sixth in the Olympic Games final of swimming. You know, you, you've made the final, you're doing pretty well, but you didn't win a medal. I think that's our economy, you know, and that's, if you make the final, you're doing really well, by the way. I'm not being rude, but, you know, so we, we're doing okay, but we haven't quite won the gold medal. Ten years ago, we were winning gold medals every year in our economy, but we've just also in the Olympics. Yeah, well, we've won a few few too, but yeah, but that's the economy. So we're sort of doing we're doing okay. And in fact, the thing that gives me some optimism in there is that yeah, we don't have uh, obvious structural risks ahead. Okay, the housing market is one where I can see why the housing bears. Get, get excited from time to time and it's, it's a legitimate issue but again we've got to change thankfully the RBA and APRA and others have re-regulated the way invested loans are we've cracked down on foreign investors buying our property common sense is prevailing for people wanting to buy investment properties the rental yields are so dismal why would you buy an investment property right now it's bad economics or personal finance to do that so you know, th- that's probably the only real internal risk I can say you know, we'll put aside the global economy which we can't control but you know, our economy is still structurally okay and while we had a discussion on the budget just a minute ago, look, at the end of the day, our budget position isn't horrendous. It's a long way from the US, the Euro countries. Uh, as a percentage
2: percent of, of GDP. Yeah,
0: both budget deficit and the level of debt. So it's not horrendous, but it's, you know, we, we'd want to make sure that it doesn't get much worse. So the economy right now is yeah, muddling through. It's okay. Unemployment's below 6%. GDP's sort of 2.5 to 3 range. Inflation's too low. I think that's one thing that we can say. Uh, but we're not on the cusp or the edge of falling into a recession, but nor are we, do we have that springboard to, to really lift us up into 2017, where we see 3% plus GDP
2: growth. Sure. Um, you are listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia, and I'm here with David Scott and Stephen Kukulis. Now, um, earlier this year, there was a certain economist at the Royal Bank of Scotland. His name was Andrew Roberts. And he issued a note um, on portfolio positioning, and it contained the words, sell everything. Um, he said, and then it was followed up with a qualifier, so, "You know, except high-grade um, bonds. And I think it was uh, sell mostly everything, except high-quality high bonds. Now, uh, Stephen, you were, this was, you know, it was a period where people were getting pretty worried, you know, the, the you know, um, uh, bonds were surging. Uh, there was this sort of weirdness happening in China again. There was that day when the Chinese stock market shut down after plunging seven percent in a matter of minutes. Um, there was so there was all that happening. It was a little bit sort of irksome, certainly. But you um, uh, had a fairly optimistic view at the time, and you famously challenged uh, him to. Um, to uh, to um, to to a ten thousand dollar bet, which he didn't accept. Ten thousand Aussie, yes. <laughs> <laughs> not Zimbabwe dollars. <laughs> yeah, ten thousand, but um, but uh, it, and it was across a range of asset classes, like U.S. stocks here, um, Brazil stocks. I'm just looking at them here: China stocks, Japan stocks. Um, Iron ore, oh goodness me! Um, Oil, WTI, wow! Just look at the prices here. So oil was at thirty-one dollars fifty a a barrel. Iron ore was at forty U.S. dollars. Um, There was uh, Aussie was at seventy. Aussie was at seventy cents. Um, And the Nikkei was at seventeen thousand two hundred. My goodness! And um, the S and P five hundred was nineteen twenty-five at the time. So the S and P has put on ten percent. About that, and things like iron ore,
0: even the oil price dip, because it traded at 50, we're now in the low 40s. It's, it's, that's 25-30% higher. So, look, I think the call came out at the low point of the cycle, as as often happens. You know, it's always darkest at the, at the what's it the saying? Just on. Yeah. Thank you. Gosh, I can't remember my cliches. Isn't that dreadful? But look, it was look. Good on him. He got huge publicity. It was a great marketing tool but as advice to investors it was really reckless and okay he's done well on buying bonds because they're rallying like crazy and um, on that part of it it's been good but if anybody who had followed his advice had sold or, or shorted US stocks emerging market stocks I like chose Brazil as the emerging markets one because he was down on emerging markets on house prices I've you know, include US Sydney and UK house prices on commodities oil iron ore and copper for example and short on Aussie as a proxy for global inflation risks or whatever it was, of the 11 things that I offered him, that bet on, and he only had to get six. It wasn't sell everything. He didn't have to get them all right. He only had to get six of the 11 right. As we sit here today, uh, 10 of the 11 have gone my way. The Nikkei is the only thing that's gone his way. And uh, the weighted average, if we just have a simple weighted average equal weights between each of these 11 items, the net gain is about 13% in, what's that, eight months or so, seven and a half months.
1: Well, he's calling the uh, high grade bonds has done all right. Uh, <laughs> yes, it
0: has. It has. <laughs> not, True. Not much yes.
1: else, though. If, uh, if his risk manager was uh, no, was was paying attention and he had these uh, trades in live, uh, I'm sure he'd be margin caught a few, uh, few hundred times. Um, and look, he could still be right, but uh, that won't help anyway because he would have been busted in the first place. Um, yeah, it's uh it's been really interesting. I've got the impression at the start of the year obviously the Chinese stocks you said there was one time that there was a the circuit breakers kicked in you had the 7% collapse. It actually happened twice. It happened twice in a week. I think it was on a th- a Tuesday and a, and a and a Thursday. Um and then they went and scuttled their um their uh circuit breakers as a result of that and then of course there was all the big surge in uh, no, uh dollar yuan. Uh, everyone was concerned about what uh, what the Chinese currency was going to do. It was going to collapse. It was going to lead to a banking crisis and the like. Um, I found a lot of those conversations too were being had offshore. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, American commentary, a lot of uh, commentary in the, in, uh, in Europe, were very very downbeat. It's like you no, know, the outflows, the capital outflows from China were massive. But I was just saying, that it's all valued in U.S. dollar terms, and it had just happened after the U.S. Federal Reserve had hiked rates for the first time in nearly a decade. Um, and the U.S. dollar was bid, and it sort of struck me as like, well, you've got not the, the, the basket of currencies in there, in there that they have in their reserves is not just U.S. dollars. They have a whole variety of of currencies, and I, just the, the revaluation effect of that was explained a large chunk of why the reserves were falling. Um, but the frenzy got you known to a mass, and they were whipped up into a frenzy, and people were concerned. That's where you no. Know, Looking at the date, I think it was sent out was, uh, was January 11 January. or January 12, something like yeah, those lines. Yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, that was right at the, at the peak hysteria about what was going on. And uh, look, he still could be right, but uh, my, my impression was that uh, he was caught up in that hysteria as well.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And, and look... In a sense, the economic conditions have been more in his favour because we have had soft growth. The Feds paused from the one rate hike in December last year. They've obviously been unable to follow through with that. And we've had the ECB moving to negative rates. We've had BOJ well doing right, a range of things, but generally being stimulatory. We've had, um, not just because of Brexit, but the, you know, the Bank of England doing stimulatory things, cutting rates, a- a ramping up its QE. So, in a sense, uh, his economic call's actually been... Not bad, because the economy, the global economy, the global conditions where you would normally think stock prices would fall, commodity prices would fall, housing markets might get a little bit uh, rickety and all the rest of it. The, The market reaction to disappointing economic news has been, in a sense, wrong. But that said, the markets are clearly reacting to the stimulus that the policymakers are uh, pumping into the global economy in all those central banks that we just mentioned. And that's finally it's into these sort of assets, commodities, stocks, and uh, and the general economy. And
2: one of the things I think that's really now gaining traction, a lot of people are talking about this, what's happening with global stocks, particularly the S&P, S&P, and it's kind of washing into Australia a little bit, um, people are talking about it, is they all hate this rally, because it's, you know, it's done on low volumes, um, you know, people are looking for somewhere to put you know, risk-hungry money. Um, well, buy stocks, um, and there doesn't seem to be, I think the banks are down a little bit um, towards the end of this week, but, you know, um, generally they're, they're doing okay, um, uh, and uh, there's just been, you know, this, over, I think it was particularly through July, um, the ASX gained more than 6%, um, and there doesn't seem to be anything fundamental driving it, or you know, and, and valuations are already pretty high. What do you think of it? Yeah, look, uh, for, for the market, when they're getting the benefits of some stimulus too,
0: don't forget we've had, well, with the rate cut this week, but also the one back in May, we've got uh, interest rates at incredibly low levels. And the, as we touched on with the housing market, for people who are looking to invest some money, and that's probably all of us to one extent or another in our super funds or just personally or uh, trying to just work out what can we do with any spare savings we've got, Property isn't looking very good because prices are high and returns are low, uh, so that's something of uh, a no-go area. I would suggest term deposits are low, and while they might be safe, it's uh, if you're a, the proverbial self-funded retiree um, and you're trying to rely on the income from your term deposits, you, you ain't going to do it. So therefore, you look at uh, the dividends in some of the you know good stocks. Uh, you'll be probably putting your money into there. And that might account for the fact that the, you know, the ASX is at 5500 not 5000 which it was at the start of the year or a, f- a few months ago. And it's just a simple asset allocation decision from investors who aren't silly. They know <laughs> that they're getting a rotten return on term deposits. The housing market looks toppish in price and lowish in yield, and stocks are looking medium in price and decent in yield. So you know, maybe this can go a bit further. Maybe, particularly if the housing market does weaken, if house prices come off and we get this building construction boom feeding into a glut of property, that we do actually get that decline coming through, further decline in rental yields. So the incentive to put your money into investment
2: property is even less. Yeah. Um, So you're with the Devils in Details podcast on Business Insider Australia. I'm going to wrap up soon. But quickly, I just want to talk about um, uh, Stephen, as I mentioned at the start, um, is a big presence on, uh, on Australian finance Twitter. Um, you know, um, I think, you know, some people who look at Twitter just go on there and they see this morass of chaos and people swearing at each other. Uh, And Mike Carlton saying whatever Mike Carlton saying that day. But actually, one of the things, finance Twitter is quite civilized and fun. Um, And some of how you use Twitter is about who you follow and how you create it and and, and basically whether you're prone to being triggered by people. you know, In some ways, Twitter for some people should have a permanent uh, trigger warning when you call (laughs) up the homepage. Beware if you have. If you if you are triggered by any of the following four thousand things, do not go onto this website. Um, but look, um, there, there's a meme at the moment which is um, you know a way of expressing sort of mild disapproval at people is when they say something intentionally provocative and maybe it's a bit cheeky, that you respond to them by um, uh, by just using their first name on a full point. So you know, David. Stephen. Um, and the kook is one person who I would say once a day, um, I, you know, I'll call up my tweet deck and I'll have a look over it and the kook will be over there in one corner and I'll just like, now I don't do it because I'd come across as <laughs> really, really annoying. Um, but I just want to give you a couple of examples of recent, recent provocative tweets. Um, the first one is, Memo, U.S. stocks are not at an all-time high. As far as I can tell, all-time hasn't finished and stocks might rise before time ends. That was a frustration I've had for about 25 years that, you know,
0: all-time high um, is not able to be calculated yet, because it only will, well, it won't be when all time ends because we won't be here, but um, you can say it's at a record high, so when the US um, Dow or S&P got to 2,190, whatever it was, it was at a record high, sorry, probably only got to 2,150, and, and that tweet's proved to be absolutely correct, because since then it's got higher, so it wasn't at an all-time high, because in the time that's gone on since, it's got
1: higher. Stephen Hawking on Twitter? It sounds like a question he should be answering. (laughs)
2: That's right. (laughs) Exactly. I I, I, want to move on to the next one. So this is, again, Stephen, the average Australian Australian smokes 955 cigarettes a year. Just observing.
0: That was in response to some of the discussion about plain packaging, which is something that I've had a bit of a hobby horse about too, I must confess, plain packaging on cigarettes. And... um, uh, it's a bit like saying that the average Australian has less than two legs. You know, so it's, it's a problem of averages. Uh, all you need is one person out of 24 million to have one leg, and the average is less than two, of course. So it was just this discussion about um, how many cigarettes people are smoking and how many people, cigarettes people aren't smoking. But, you know, so it was just, again, it was a throwaway... Smart Alec comment, Decided to say, well, you know, averages can be very deceptive if you use them and abuse them. So it's like torturing the data, it's waterboarding the data to show that, gee, well, I don't smoke 955 cigarettes a day, and nor does anyone in my family, so
2: someone must be smoking
0: 10,000 a year, I mean, not a day, a year, year. I should
2: say. Yeah. Um, And then one more, Um, in the months since the election, has Treasurer Morrison said anything about the economy, the budget, or economic policy? Asking for a friend. (laughs) Well, a friend was actually highlighting to me that, um, and and, and again, they
0: they were important issues, but as Treasurer, and it was to do with the uh, Dondale treatment of uh, Indigenous children, and really important issues in the Nauru um, scandals, I suppose we can call them that, really, really important issues, but it's not for the Treasurer Uh, a month and a half after the election, necessarily to be going on the front foot about those things when as we've just been discussing this last little bit that there are really important economic issues that he should be starting to lead the agenda about on economic policy look he's been treasurer for almost a year now he's been a senior minister in this coalition government for three years now he's a senior opposition person when uh, when the labor party were in power he knows what's got to be done and having won the election albeit by a small margin but it's a sort of quite a workable majority when you consider that a couple of the independents will always support the coalition. So it's a bit bigger than the one uh, vote majority that they have on on paper. I I would love to see, maybe this is again my frustration on economic policy, I'd love to see the government and the Treasurer really getting on the front foot on economic policy. Okay, we won the election, we got a bit of a scare. We've got to be careful about how we adjust policy, that we've got to do it politically, and I I do actually agree, you've got to bring the population along with you or else you're not going to win. So they've got to do it with a degree of fairness and equity, but they've got to have a net change that covers these things that we discussed, moving the budget towards surplus a little more quickly, a little more aggressively. Doing something that may not be boosting productivity tomorrow, but in three, five, ten years' time, we can see that there's a benefit for the economy. You know, it's things like education funding, it's road building, it's all these other things that we've discussed. As long as they're as long as they're well founded, people people get it. it, Yes, and that's the frustration. So, uh, if you can sell it, it, so they get it if you can sell it, and that was one of Mr. Hockey's problems. Um, You know, that 2014 budget which went down like a lead balloon. Dare I say it? Some of the things in that weren't the worst policy ideas I've ever heard. It was just that they were they were caught up in a whole lot of political rhetoric, not economic rhetoric on why, for example, the Medicare co-payment may have had some credibility if he could have articulated and sold to the people why he's doing it, with a cap, so people who are chronically ill who see the GP a lot don't have to sort of be um, dipping into their pocket a lot. But there was an but astonishing... Mean, so, so people like me who earn a decent income, yeah. Five bucks to see the GP. Whatever that number is, as a price signal, maybe there's something there. But he sold it so badly. So my frustration with that tweet about Morrison. What are you doing, mate? You won the election. Good on you. Get on with it and start laying out the agenda for the next three years. Let alone for the next six months. Doing something because we know the budget's looking shaky. We know the economy's muddling through. Um, we know we've got very low inflation. We've got the warning from Glenn Stevens now. You know, rightly so. Get get on the front foot. Get on out there and really. Bring Australia with you on economic policy. Yeah,
2: I think uh, he, he um, I, I, you know, when I saw that tweet, I kind of agreed with you, and, um, uh, you know, it's, um, it, well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. We can sit around and agree with each other. Um, but, um, but, um, no, I, I, I did agree because, um, uh, you know, it is really important, and I think Morrison, I detect a little bit of frustration from him because he tried earlier this year to ignite some interest in the political class in volatility, Australia, the nature of Australians open economy, um, how important it is to be positioned and sort of understand that, you know, stuff's going to blow up from time to time, and we know now that the way that the transfer channels in the global economy work, that we are exposed to them in a pr- pretty significant way. Now, um, and he needs a bit of understanding, and, and I suppose as a leader who say, look, you know wants to say, wants to convince people that we have a plan, and if we continue down this road for this plan we 'll build up some strength that will help us deal with whatever gets whatever slings and arrows may, uh, may, may, may be thrown uh, in the economy 's way
0: and as you touched on the electorate, I think get it they 're not silly they, you know, we all make contingency plans in, in, if you like for ourselves with, with, our, with our savings, with our cautious approach to what we put in super and borrow for our house." and all these other things. So we all do it. I'm not saying that the federal budget's like a household budget. I'm not. I've got to get that out of the way very quickly. But if you want that analogy to be put to the public while you're the treasurer and saying that... You'd probably have to acknowledge that the previous government handled the GFC quite well, though, because that's something that politics gets in the way again. But it it was uh, the case that that fiscal uh, fantastic position that was there in 2007... No net debt, budget surpluses did allow the Rudd government to do what it did. There's no que- with, without blowing up our our public finances. It was the buffer it was, it at the really end of the train important. line. And if, when, he could, yeah. if he could come, if Scott Morrison could come around and sort of acknowledge that, that not just you know Howard government left surpluses and you guys blew it. Well, and that's cheap politics in a sense. Um, but if he could sort of say, well, OK, we've, we do really want to get to that surplus a little quicker, and yes, we are going to take some tough decisions. i not starting to be repeating myself here, but if Morrison could come out and say that, and as you said at the start of this year, when he was talking about GST changes, when he was talking about, dare I say it, state income tax and powers, when he was talking about the need to cut spending, that our problem on the budget is spending, not revenue. OK, I happen to think that both sides should be tackled to improve the fiscal position. But if he really believes that, and came out very strongly to say, well, we're going to cut 1% of GDP from the budget, well, that's a good debate. And we can quibble about what it is that he cuts, but good on him. I'd I'd actually give him a big tick for putting out the issues that are going to be cut. Because at the moment, we don't know what they are. He still talks about the need to reduce uh, spending to get the budget back into surplus, not revenue. But what are those m- mythical items? Come on and say it. And then we can have a debate about that. Maybe we go halfway there, negotiate with the Senate, get the things through. And there, you, lo and behold, there's your budget improvement. If you could do that, it's a tick in terms of public
2: policy. Um, absolutely. And, you know, um, this, we were, um, I think it's in the spirit of Twitter, you know, we tried to, uh, you know, you try to talk about something that, you know... Uh, but um, a few interesting things, and you end up kicking the crap out of Scott Morrison. Um, but, um, no, I, 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 do, I do take your point. I think Morrison has, I think, probably a little bit of frustration. I think he's tried to get, you know, like some interest in, in some of these challenges uh, among people, but it, um, it has not, it hasn't worked yet.
0: The, the opposition's tried to smash them and probably succeeded reasonably well, and internally, that's the other thing, internally within the, the coalition parties, he's had trouble getting these things through, that there's the a small but still relatively powerful part of the Liberal Party that just hates tax increases that want smaller government come hella high water. And as we as we're sort of I think most most people would agree, you need a bit of both. You need to trim spending? Yes. A few revenue measures? Yes. Lo and behold the compounding effect of both of those is quite powerful. Or can be quite powerful.
2: Fantastic.
1: Scotty, just quickly on Twitter, who do you like to follow on there? Too many do you go and follow. Uh, Geez, um, from a charting perspective, like you no, know, just like you no, know, people who look like pretty charts, not charting per se for uh, for markets. Uh, ANZ Westpac's uh, teams do great jobs on Twitter. Um, Naughty and Marcus as well. They've always got excellent charts and really fun things to go and look at. Look, um, Chris Weston, Asad uh, Doctor NRL, Mr Macro Man. Um, gee, there's a, there's a lot of people to go know and, uh, and, and say, but uh, look, everyone who I follow is uh, is worthwhile following. So go through my list. I think there's just under a thousand. I've got a lot of good people to follow there.
0: I can't disagree with any of those names, but for for different sort of things too, people like uh, Grog's Gamut, yeah, you know, Greg Jericho, who writes from the Guardian, he does lovely charts on the economy and and, de- and good analysis on a whole bunch of things on housing. Pete Wargent's an interesting character who does some nice things on his blog and analysing housing markets really interesting on a geographical basis on other things like that. And uh, Lewis Christopher from SQM Research does some interesting stuff, calls it as he sees it. He's one of those sort of uh, people that does it. And for a bit of light banter, Chris Caton, uh, recently retired, uh, is always uh, really accurate in terms of the language and whether house prices are falling, were falling, could be falling, may be falling. Anyway, we love you, Chris.
1: When it comes to Chris Caden and you, I go and watch your, uh, your banter go back and forth. I'm trying to figure out who's the bear with the, and who's got the stick. You know, one, one day it's uh, roles reverse and the next day it's, it's back again. But, uh, yeah, and, and I just want to go and say Pete Wygen as well is, uh, is definitely worthwhile following, particularly for some people who are really interested in what's going on in the Australian property market. He has got his finger on the pulse. Absolutely fantastic on demographics, supply, demand, apartments, housing, You've been
2: listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, um, and I've been here with David Scott.
1: Great to be here, and I'm not going to be here next week because I'm going to be on a beach in Samoa. So everyone have a great week.
2: Yeah, on, on, uh, on, on assignment in Samoa um, with some cocktails. Good man. Um, and our guest this week has been um, uh, it's just been fantastic, Stephen Kukoulos. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us on, on Devils and Details. You're on um, Breakfast with the Economists uh, next week, is it? In a couple of weeks. It's on the 31st of August. It's Breakfast with the Economists, where we've got
0: uh, the chief economist from uh, S&P New York, Paul Sheard there. We've got uh, Bill Evans. Uh, crikey, who else? With Sue ong Joe Masters. It's a really good turnout, and it's always a lot of fun, so just check the blog or the website for details of that, and I'm moderating the discussion to keep it interesting and flowing and, uh, and not too bitter and twisted.
1: Yes, I've gone to, uh, to many of these, uh, both as a, when I was in financial markets and elsewhere, and I can tell you that, that Cook's a great moderator, very good at keeping a lot of egos in check as well, and it's, uh, it's, it's great value, and look, it is free as well. So uh, anyone who's got the opportunity, I think it's in uh, Sydney, Melbourne. Sydney, Melbourne, and then
2: Auckland. Yes. So just check the blog for the details of that.
1: Highly recommended. Uh,
2: egos in check. I can't imagine there would be anybody, any of those, at a, at, a, at a room in a room full of economists having breakfast. Stephen Kukulis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, David. Cheers. We'll talk to you next week.
0: Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.